You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. I recognize that from outside this chamber is the outraged conscience of a nation, the grave concern of many nations the harsh judgment of history on our eyes. But even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and today we're going to be looking at the continued power of relationships and the importance of trust and respect in those relationships. And in this show's example, these, those two things led to perhaps one of the greatest achievements of the last half of the 20th century, the passage of the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was an accomplishment made possible by many, many people and names that I know you've heard, like Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis and Roy Williams and Robert Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson and many, many other names I haven't mentioned. But one name that is often just briefly mentioned but many people may not be as familiar with is frankly one of the most important in getting the bills passed in the first place. His name was Senator Everett Dirksen, the Republican Minority Leader in the U.S. Senate. He died on September 7, 1969, of cardiac arrest at the age of 73. But his role in civil rights came because of a friendship with two presidents that he'd had through his time in Congress, John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Dirksen was an extraordinarily well-respected senator. He had a flair, a showmanship, but he could be counted on to do the right thing. For those not as familiar with him, I want to introduce you to him. C-SPAN broadcast an interview tour of the Capitol from ABC News and reporter Howard K. Smith. And I just want to show you or let you listen to a few moments of it. believe in fate, that there are special places carved out for men. A man just has to hunt around until he finds it. May find their belief confirmed by Mr. Dirksen's career. Like a good many other men who've worked in this building, like Lyndon Johnson and John Kennedy, not to mention Congressman Lincoln of Illinois, Dirksen made no real mark in the House of Representatives. He was one more stereotyped conservative with nothing remarkable to say and no appreciable influence. 
But when he officially crossed that rotunda from the House to the Senate, he was like a hand going into a well-fitted glove. The Senate was what he was born for. In the Senate, oratory and debate count. There's more scope for that quality that every good politician has to have, showmanship. There's more room for maneuver and for the subtle exercise of persuasion. President Franklin D. Roosevelt used to tell people who wanted to get something done, clear it with Sidney, meaning the great labor leader of that time, Sidney Hillman. Well, in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, the rule of success has been clear it with Dirksen. He's not a senator, he is now the senator. The man who gets legislation passed or stopped. His residual conservatism shows occasionally in his campaign to cancel the Supreme Court's one-man, one-vote ruling and a few other lost causes. But he's also the man who made the difference in passing the Great Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Act of 1965, the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, and much else of the legislation that is changing the United States. Then the Nuclear uh, Treaty Treaty. Uh, I have gone back to read that article in the New Yorker written by John Hersey. Hiroshima. Oh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. And then I plowed around to get to the later detail on it. I go back to that every once in a while. But uh, thinking about it, the ghastly death. You know, it was an amazing thing. There was a river there, and actually the heat caused that river to boil. Well, people trying to escape that uh, inferno rushed to the river and jumped in, didn't realize they were jumping into boiling water. So that's the ghastly and grim aspect of nuclear power when it's set in motion for that kind of a purpose. And I thought something has to be done about it. And uh, I will devote what talent I have to uh, getting this thing over if we can. I attended all the hearings, I heard all the experts, all the scientists, and I was willing to expose myself to every argument, pro and con, before I came to a final conclusion. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, you can illustrate things with humor when you can't do it any other way. Lincoln knew that. And I think I told you once before, when they got out this new issue of greenbacks in the Civil War, uh, somebody said to him, I suppose it was Chase, the... Uh, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, is there an inscription for these? And Lincoln puzzled for a moment and said, what was it that Peter said to Paul? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. <laughs> I thought that was delightful. Now, there's one other thing about humor that I should mention, and this reminds me of it. It has a biological effect. You can talk to an audience for 20, 30 minutes, and maybe they get just a little weary, particularly if the speaker's high up and you, you uh, sort of crank those uh, neck muscles and uh, their eyes begin to close a little. At that point, a good story, one that they call good for a belly laugh. The blood comes out and they're just as pure and lively as they ever were. And that's the magic of the story I've discovered. Yes, when I came here, the entire budget of government was about three and one-third billion. That was for everything. Army, Navy, all the uh, civilian agencies of government, everything. About three and a third billion. Now our administrative budget for the present fiscal year is 135 billion. 
I remember when uh, I first knew uh, Reed Smoot, the Mormon senator from Utah. I didn't know him well, but I mentioned once to him that I was astounded the way uh, government grew money-wise. And he said, my boy, it'll never be different. He says the country goes from one plateau to another, always in an upward direction. And the other day, I saw a speculative uh, item on the budget to the effect that at the rate of growth, we'll see the time when our budget will be close to $750 billion. Now, $750 billion is three quarters of a trillion. We haven't quite gotten accustomed to that word trillion yet. Everett Dirksen became the partner for Lyndon Johnson. Johnson was a larger-than-life former Democratic leader of the Senate. But the two men had known each other uh, since Dirksen was a congressman and LBJ was the doorman in the, in the congressional elevator system. LBJ had become a congressman, Senate majority leader uh, about the time really before Everett Dirksen had become his party's minority leader. Now, Johnson was known for his ability to persuade, bully, and do whatever it took to get his way. They called it the Johnson treatment, and Dirksen was often on the receiving end of that treatment. But make no mistake about it, Dirksen was a pretty damn good horse trader himself. The years had created some trust between the two. The circumstances showed another thing that made their relationship work, and that was respect. After Johnson found himself thrust into the presidency after the assassination of President Kennedy, he called Senator Dirksen. Former Senators Trent Lott and Senator Tom Daschle wrote about the first encounter in their book, Crisis Point. Johnson said that they needed to get together, and Dirksen said, okay, I'll be right down. No, no, I'll come to you, President Johnson said. Thirty minutes later, the President of the United States was in the Capitol building. What they talked about may not have, have mattered as much as the fact that they did it, that they were talking. The president treated the minority leader as worth that trip to the Capitol, and that said volumes. Those two were written uh, in that book, Crisis Point. The respect that LBJ showed Everett Dirksen would pay enormous dividends. The two men would go do a lot of horse trading over the next six years. And here's a little taste of what they did. Here they are trying to make a deal about a project in Illinois on the Catchy River and Johnson trying to get his budget and tax bill done. It's a fascinating phone call. In the bill for the Catchy River navigation project, I spent about KAS, KASKIA, Catchy River navigation project. Now, all I want to do is to have Graham say to the committee that the engineers do have construction capability for fiscal 1965. And if it's only $25,000 or $50,000, uh, that'll be enough to nail the thing down. How big's the project? Uh, What's the total cost? The total cost project, I think, is $30-something million. Now it's in that area of Illinois that's distressed. And already Kaiser Aluminum and a half a dozen other plants have option sites in that area just waiting for the time when this thing can be finished so that they can barge coal out of there and raw materials. And it's going to be the making of the 
other very counties of the state. Let me get on, I'll call you back. Yeah, I, I just want to be sure that General Brennan... Now, you're not going to beat me on excise taxes and run my budget this year. I've got that. I've got ways and means holding hearings, and we're going to come up with a recommendation one way or the other. But don't beat me on that now. You can do it if you want to, and you can run the budget, but you're hollering the economy in. And uh, trying to balance it, and I've cut the deficit 50% under what Kennedy had it. Now, if you screw me up on excise taxes and get that thing going, I'll have hell. Now, let my ways and means committee now look at the pressure I'm under. Now, you're not a net trade associate. Well, I know it, but to God, you also for good fiscal prudence, and you know, you know that the way to do this is through the House committee, and you know if you put it in, you're not going to get it. They're not going to let you all write a bill over the Senate on taxes. Now, please don't press me on that. Well, who are you going to take? You going to take all your Republicans? Give me one or two of them, and let them be prudent. You've got people on there that can... Well, you've got enough votes to do No, I haven't. I haven't. You can beat me, and you, you ought to do it. And you, you, you see how, I'm, how you're going to let me win by one vote, and then I'll call you back in a little bit on this. You never talked that way when you were sitting in any fun seat. Yeah, well, I, I, did, I did if my country's involved. I voted for Ike one time. When Nolan voted against him, I cast the vote on his foreign aid and brought it out of the committee. You're a hard bargain. And no, I'm not, but you just take care of me, and I'll look at this and see what I can do and call you right back. All right. <laughs> he says that if I want him to, that he'll testify... He said he's got a hundred thousand restudy going on that won't be out until September. Yeah. That he can't tell that if the railroads haul this coal out of there and the economics are such that it won't justify that he he he'd be in a hell of a shape. So he says it, he says what he'll testify is this that the engineers have a construction capability for nineteen sixty five contingent on favorable restudy of the economics of the project. Yeah. That he believes that it will be a favorable restudy. That he believes that they can get barges out of there. But he can't see positively because he's got 100,000 wrapped up in this study. It's coming out in September. And said if it came out the wrong way, uh, he'd be in a hell of a shape. But he'll, he'll put it in. He'll say that they have a capability contingent on the restudy, and you can put the money in contingent on the restudy, and then uh, he, if the restudy goes against it and the project's no good, he'll just uh, have to not spend it. Yeah, except his division engineer in St. Louis told us today that they did have this construction capability. Well, he says they'll, they'll, they'll have a construction capability if the thing ought to be built at all, but if, yeah. if, the, if the economics of it not justified, and they'll know when they get through this 100,000 study, which will be through in September. So he says, put your money in, contingent upon it being uh, uh, justified. Okay. And I told him to go as strong as he could, and he said he'd go 60,000. So okay. he'll testify for 60,000 for you, and don't you tell anybody now that you've got a back door to the White House, but you go up there and don't you kill my goddamn tax bill tomorrow. And you quit messing around in my smokehouse. You forget that I bought a key at People's Drug Store. Well, I know that a label on the back door at the White House. One Republican is going to vote against you tomorrow. <laughs> uh, against what? Against your uh, your raid on the Treasury. I don't know whether anybody's going to vote. Well, how many will you let vote against you? Well, I don't know. I have to do a little whispering. I'm going to lose a bunch of people on my side, so I've got to get to a three-year-old man. You're a hard bargain. Well, you get them for me. Now, here's what Joe Fowler says. Joe Fowler says that the position Mills is taking is the correct position. Uh -huh. That his committee will make a full, definitive study 
of the present taxes immediately, and that study should be continued. Yep. That is my strong feeling. I would like to, I would have to stick with the colleagues in the Treasury. Once you uncork this thing just a little bit, you're a little bit pregnant, and you'll never know where it ends. You'll have great difficulty with mail if you tried to take off some of the taxes. He wouldn't allow that. Whatever was said at the time, the big tax bill was up about hearings, was not to give any indication that the administration subscribed. Furthermore, no statement was made that hearings would be held before June the 30th. Some of them said that was made, so I called him. Now, you offer your amendment, but don't you... Don't well, you... has got time on his side. He can kill it in conference. No, don't kill it in conference. That gets everybody upset, and you get every damn outfit in the country, and don't make it cruel and inhuman punishment. That's unconstitutional. Why, everybody's upset all the time. No. What do you think? Well, sure enough, you know. I just got you straightened out. Thirty million dollars worth. You let me upset for our hundred days on that damn civil rights. Thirty million dollars? You got yourself in debt. You're the hero of the hour now. I know they've forgotten that anybody else is around. Every time I pick up papers, Dirksen Magazine. Yeah, I NAACP is flying Dirksen banners and pick it in the White House tomorrow. I couldn't even get you to change your, your tune about that damn house bill. Oh, the hell you couldn't. I, I told him that I was the first thing they asked me. I said, whatever Dirksen the attorney got to agree on, I'm for. That's what I set him up there to agree for. You know, you never got a call from me during the whole outfit. You know that. Uh, but don't don't mess up that tax bill tomorrow now, Everett. Please don't. Well, uh, i got to offer this. I'll offer it, but don't. John Williams is not parading the Treasury, so get him to save you. <laughs> well, he's been my savior before. Well, get him to do it. Well, he's... Okay. Here's another great call. This one, Dirksen is trying to get LBJ to look at some appointments for him, including one guy, Maury Stans, that Johnson doesn't want to appoint. And this one is, is just classic LBJ. It's a great call. What I talked about was this. You know, when you named that Federal Commission on the Budget, the Budget Day Commission, you didn't put Maury Stans in. Hell, I wouldn't put any. I didn't put Jim Farley. Well, why didn't you put Stans in? Because he's Jim Farley. He's the most partisan man I know. I wouldn't appoint him justice to peace. <laughs> I wouldn't, honestly. I wouldn't, by God, I wouldn't put him on a Republican committee. He's the partisan to be manager of the Republican committee. I worked with him when I was his eyes and hours leader. He's the most partisan man I ever saw. But he's damn evil. Well, I don't give a damn. I don't, uh, uh Hoff is able. Well, well. I, 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 I point men that are not partisan. Hell, I wouldn't put Democratic partisans. They wanted me to put Frank Pace. I don't want a partisan committee. I want people to call this thing without regard to politics. Yeah. He just runs around with his ass pocket full of partisan statements to mislead, hoodwink, hogwash the people. He does it for Nixon. He does it all the time. He did it for Eisenhower was here. I never could understand Eisenhower letting him come in his office because I never have known a less political man than Eisenhower. And uh, I'm not against politics. I think you've got the finest combination of both I ever saw. But by God, if your country's at stake, Stan would sell all 50 states down the river if he thought he'd get four extra Republican votes in a tight precinct. <laughs> I, hell, I was his leader here for six years when I was now was president. Oh, I knew you would do him. Uh, I know him like a book. And uh, uh, they they came up. Charlie Shule says, uh, here, what about Frank Pace? What about uh, uh, Jim Webb? What about... Uh, uh, I said, well, Jim Webb could serve under Republican and Democrat. He served Hoover 
And he served Eisenhower just as well as he served Kennedy and me. He, he just, uh, he's, a, he's a patriot. But uh, this damn Stams, Everett, he's is. Uh, well, John Williams is objective compared to Stams in my book. In other words, you don't think much of him. Yes, I think he's smart as hell, and I think he's able as hell, and I think he's partisan as hell. What? You know, I got his number. What? what? I... I don't want it to be partisan. Now, this damn Jerry Ford. Uh, Jerry likes to play a little dirty politics. Uh -huh. Now, he's out here. I've got more damn stuff on your people. I can indict 40 of them. Oh, uh, no. No, but he, he hits us every day. Now, last year, Jerry came out here three or four days ago. Uh, talking about a campaign dinner or something. Oh, about post, about, uh, let me see what it was. Uh, something about somebody uh, uh, being asked to attend a dinner that uh, that uh, 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 the Democrats were having. I don't remember some state. And he made a mean, vicious statement about it. Uh -huh. Now, people live in glass houses, shouldn't throw stones. Well, I learned that long ago. Well, you tell Jerry to go up and see Sherman Adams. I have kept him out of jail here for three years and just tell him, go up there and talk to him because he can give him a few lessons. But if he just keeps on and he's got a hard on to get in trouble, well, I'll accommodate him. But hell, he's Jerry, you and Jerry sent me a letter uh, inviting funds. Why, sure. Oh, we violate every damn law in the book. And they ought to quit to, we, we ought to have some of these things that where you can decently have a dinner for each party without raising hell. I won't let my people criticize y'all's dinner. Yeah. If you want to have a president's club, I said, let them contribute. I don't, I think they need money. What? I, I don't object to it. I think both parties ought to have all the money they need to put on a good campaign. But he plays that way. Now, that's the way this damn scams play. Yeah. And I don't know whether we ought to have an NIA budget or not. I'm inclined to think that if we take in $175 billion, the people ought to know it. And uh, even if some of it's in trust funds uh, for Social Security and Medicare and it comes in annually, I think you ought to know it. I think everything we spend out of those funds, the people ought to know it. And my only exception I would make is loans, because loans are not operating and they can come, they, they get your money back on them. You even make a profit on some of them. So it's not a part of your annual budget. But I would put everything you take in and everything you spend in one budget, that simple, where the people could say you take in $175 billion, you, you spend $185, you got a $10 billion deficit. Now, I don't know whether that's what they'll do or not. I don't care. I'm not going to say one word. I don't think I've ever met Kennedy. I, I uh, asked Bob Anderson, who is an objective but uh, loyal Republican, to be chairman of it. And he said that he ought to have Dave Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, it's not going to be anything partisan. Yeah. Old, old, uh, old uh, uh, Jerry Ford... He's already calling, and he wants to get every goddamn war deal in the country on it. Uh, well, I didn't ask you to put anybody on it. No, no, but he wants stamps on me. Uh -oh. You just tell him that we wouldn't have a director of the budget that, that have fixed views like Frank Pace or like the stamps. Uh, or uh, like the, uh, I've forgotten uh, who it was, we, we started to have Secretary of Treasury. Yeah. And then they said, well, they're too, George Humphrey is too bitter, and uh, John Snyder is too Democratic, yeah. and so we didn't put them on. But I made them put Bob Anderson, because I think he is the, 
He is a very able fellow, and nobody knows it, but Bob Anderson used to be a budget man and a tax commissioner and a college professor. He's not a damn Democrat or a Republican either. He just got tied up with you and I's power, and anybody meets you loves you. Well, he loves you, and he loves Eisenhower, and I, I, yeah. I want you to take care of you. I've got the best heart doctor in America. I've got the best specialist in the world. If you let me fly any of them in to see you, if you've got any pain, you let me know. No, we're doing good here. But you'd be damn sure you are. I'm not so sure you are. I'm worried about you. Yeah, we're doing all right. I had this meeting on Latin America this morning, had your friend Senator Smith, all the leadership, Kiko in, and... I didn't want to call you yesterday on this investment credit, but every businessman, I had about 35 of them, yeah. and the biggest, uh, uh, all the business council, old Roger Blau, and uh, uh, this fellow Sacconi, what's his name, Al Nickerson, and uh, all of the folks, and they all said we ought to take, uh, we ought to put back on investment credit because we'd already accomplished what we set out to do, and I told you I'd do it when we did accomplish it. Yeah. So it wasn't controversial, and I... I figured I ought to call you to the hospital. Well, the room is right. And they, I just want to pass it, though, and before this recess, and you tell whoever's speaking to you not to let them out of here, because every businessman in the country is up in arms. They don't know what to do yeah. until they act on it. Yeah. And we don't want to, we want them to, no use to wait until January to build a plant. Oh, no. That they want to build now, if it doesn't hurt us, and it, it, it's not going to hurt us, it's going to help us. That's right. Now, I'll put anybody on anything you want. And if you make me, I'd even consider Stam. But if I did, they'd have to put two Democrats to offset him, and all they do is just have a war in the press. No, I just want you to be satisfied. But uh, he, he is a capable guy. Oh, I know that. He's one of the most capable ones, but uh, so is John Williams. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll just tell him you think he has fixed views. Well, I just say fixed views and say we got some Democrats the same way, and I thought they'd argue with each other, and I don't want to get that. I want men like this, uh, Dave Kennedy and uh, and uh, uh, the uh, 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 Bob Anderson and men that are, that are kind of flexible, like you are, that pliable, that when they find the answer, they got guts enough to accept it, like uh, you did out there for old Scratton. That's the finest thing I ever saw happen. I, 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 I'll come testify for you. First vote on the treaty worked out pretty well. Oh yeah, yeah, it did. Don't don't let don't let that go down the drain. Get all advice now. I know it. I know it. Well, we had a good meeting on Latin America. Now you know what they want to do in Latin America. No. Well, you better get a hold of Tommy and some of your friends. Our people say we got to quit spending all of our life in Europe and. Asia and Middle East and Israel and everything and watch our own country here and they're going to try to set up a plan where the Latin Americans will more than match it, kind of like Eisenhower did at uh, Bogota. Well, maybe they got a point. And uh, 300 million a year uh, for five years beginning in 1970. Yeah. Plus will be too old to do anything about it, but make the Latin Americans more than match it and try to have a economic integration and some common markets here and so forth. Now, they've got it agreed on, but I'm not going down there and promise it to have Fulbright and the rest of them attack me. So I told Mansfield that I'm going to pick the resolution just like I have on India, and I'm going to make the Congress in on the takeoff as well as the landing. If they don't want me to do anything, okay. If they do, then let, let them tell me what they think. I've told them what I thought, all 40 of them, and they all agreed, even more. But uh, uh, you better... Uh, you better uh, 
put your stamp of approval on that uh, on that Latin American Congress, sense of Congress resolution. Uh, Hickenlooper and them wanted to take the money out, 300 million a year, five years. So I agreed to take it out, but I told them I wanted them to all know what was contemplated. And uh, they all did, and they all agreed on it. And all your people, Miss Smith and uh, Kinkle and uh, uh, Hickenlooper and uh, uh, this old boy from Kansas in the house, uh, Shriver, and uh, I've forgotten who else, but they were all for it. And I, I wish you'd give it your blessing in some kind of a statement saying that you appreciate that. Uh, being consulted about it, and this is a way to run foreign policy to get us in on the takeoff as well as the landing. And if anybody's got any suggestions to offer, now's the time to do it instead of cut the president after he goes abroad. I wouldn't let him cut Eisenhower. When he started Japan, they turned him down. I got him defended him. And Morris and them were attacking him. And you, you are the leader in a bipartisan foreign policy, and you, if you just have somebody, uh, when you can, put out a little statement and say you're for... Uh, this, this approach for consultations, for exchanges, and that you're going to make some recommendations yourself on what you think ought to be done, and that you hope the committee will have hearings and act on it soon. Okay. That's the Johnson treatment in action right there. It was just a fascinating thing to listen to. When we come back, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. <laughs> It's Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience. Don't take it personally, and don't fight the same old battles over and over again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to my page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. Many times, 
I said, this won't do and that won't do, this will do. And we finally shaped it up and managed to sell it to the Senate. Biggest issue that has haunted our country from the very start has been the subject of race. From slavery to civil war to Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and the Civil Rights Movement. This friendship between LBJ and Everett Dirksen created the alliance that got the two Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s passed. A monumental achievement. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended segregation in public places and banned uh, employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It was also the subject of the longest filibuster by the Southern Democratic Senators in American history. And LBJ was determined, as he said, to finish what Lincoln began. He decided that this subject would be what he would lead on right off the bat. In November 1963, the Civil Rights Bill was stopped in Congress. Now LBJ would move it. First, he got a discharge petition together to take the bill out of the segregationist Congressman Howard Smith, a Democrat of Virginia's committee. A discharge petition is a procedure in Congress when a majority of the House members sign on to it, um, onto an issue. It moves the issue out of the committee control and onto the floor. Uh, Johnson, uh, he was determined to get it done by any means necessary, and that got the chairman, Howard Smith, to agree to have a hearing and release uh, the bill rather than have the embarrassment, suffer the embarrassment of having the bill taken from him. It uh, went up to the House on January 30th, 1964. Then Johnson got his tax cut bill, originally proposed by uh, President Kennedy, out of the committee where the uh, finance chairman, uh, Harry Byrd, had tied it up in an attempt to get LBJ to drop the support for the Civil Rights Bill. But Johnson made a deal with Byrd. Uh, he kept his, Burr, his budget under $100 billion, and Byrd agreed to let the, the uh, tax bill go. That freed LBJ to push the Civil Rights Bill and to keep every other item off the floor until the Civil Rights Bill was passed. But unfortunately, LBJ still had one more issue, how to deal with the 57-day filibuster that was going on, led by Richard Russell of Georgia. Senator Russell had all the Southern senators working to, to block uh, the Civil Rights Bill, and that meant LBJ was going to need Republicans, and mainly one, his old friend, Everett Dirksen. He told his chief lieutenant and the bill sponsor, Hubert Humphrey, you and I are going to get Ed. It's going to take time. We're going to have to get him, and you make sure, you make up your mind now that you're going to spend time with Ed Dirksen. You've got to let him have a piece of the action. He's got to look good all the time. Don't let those liberal bomb throwers now talk you out of seeing Dirksen. You get in there to see Dirksen, you drink with Dirksen, you talk to Dirksen, and you listen to Dirksen. And it would work. Johnson's old friend, whom he had trusted and in whom he had gone out of his way to show respect for, came through. Hello, oh, uh, Mr. President? Yes, sir. Uh, we had a uh, meeting all day today and uh, with Senator Dirksen on the Civil Rights Bill. Good. And I uh, hear that we have an agreement with him oh, and with what? Senator Aiken and with Senator Dirksen. Congratulations. Congratulations. Now, what does he think? He think he can get the votes to approach him? Well, he's hopeful. He's going to have to go back, and they're going to have a uh, meeting of the Republicans on Tuesday morning. Did you? Uh, are you in pretty good shape with the the folks that are interested in the bill? Well, we're supposed to meet with them at 4:30. You think that you? Yeah, you know they're not going to be happy, but uh, but nothing makes them happy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we just have to uh, accept. Well, that I don't know. You did a good job making everybody happy on the House side. Well, remember we went through in that October. They weren't happy when we did it. Yeah, I know it, but. Uh, 
Yeah, they saw the wisdom of it after yeah, he did. After it was over. But Senator Humphrey did a fine job. Well. Senator Jackson was terrific. You might just... Uh, should I call him? Yes, I think it'd right. be nice. And Senator... Should I give you the name? Senator yeah. Salkstall and Senator Aitken. And uh, Phil Hart was damn helpful. And uh, Senator Magnuson was very helpful. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and of course, you get uh, you know, Dirksen. Uh, and Senator Humphrey. Mr. Dirksen, Solomon, Stahl, Aitken, Humphrey, and Hart. Yeah, Magnuson. Thank you, Bobby. Right. Attorney General said you were very helpful and did an excellent job, and that I, I, ought to, I ought to tell you that I admire you, and I told him I'd done that for some time, well, but I, I'd repeat it, and I, I hope you uh, go on and let the others uh, get, get, get the folks together and let's do the job. Yeah, well, we said the conference is for next Tuesday morning, and as soon as those are out of the way, we'll then uh, see what we do about procedure to get this thing uh, on the road and buttoned up. I talked to Dick this morning. Uh, he gave me no comfort. I, I said, now, I thought we were going to vote as a Wednesday, meaning uh, yesterday. But uh, I said, what are you going to do? Well, he said, you're not going to vote this week because we're going to keep the show going. I said, well, what about next week? I can give you no commitment because we'll have a caucus of our members Monday morning. Well, I said, Dick, we're either going to have to fish or cut bait, because I think we've now gone far enough, and I think we've been there. Well, you well, got that's about where it stands. You've got to, that's exactly right. That's what you got to do. you got to take care of your own people, and you're doing that. And I saw the other day, uh, uh, we don't want this to be a Democratic bill. We want it to be an American bill. And well, if these schools are out, they're coming out the end of this month. If they're out and we haven't got a bill, we're in a hell of shape. We're going to be in trouble anyway. Well, we're going to the, I saw your exhibit to World Fair, and it said the land of Lincoln. Yeah. So you're worthy of the land of Lincoln, and the man from Illinois is going to gonna pass the bill, and I'll see that you get proper attention and credit. Well, thanks, After Dirksen broke the filibuster, the 64 Act was passed. But later, Robert Kennedy tried to move the signing of the bill away from the July 2nd date concerned about riots or whatever that could have break out over a holiday weekend. But LBJ had promised he would sign it on the date that they got it so that the Republicans who were heading to their national convention could be there to be a part of the signing. LBJ wanted no part of not living up to his word to make sure the Republicans who had been instrumental in its passage would be there. Here with the considerations that entered into it, uh, they all announced, uh, and we 
1964 Civil Rights Act was signed into law on that day, July 2nd, 1964. When we come back, the 1965 Voters' Rights Act. 
Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience. Don't take it personally, and don't fight the same old battles over and over again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to our page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. We've got to come up with the uh, uh, qualification of the voters. That will answer 70% of your problems. If you just clear it out everywhere, make it age and read and write. No tests on uh, uh, what Chaucer said or or Browning's poetry or constitutions or, or memorizing or anything else. And then you may have to put them in the post office. Let the postmaster, that's a federal employee that I control, uh, who they can say is local, he's recommended by the congressman, he's approved by the senator. But if he doesn't register everybody, I can put a new one in. And uh, it's not an outside Washington influence, it's a local man. But they can just all go to the post office like they buy a stain. Now, I haven't thought this through, but that's uh, that's my general feeling. And I've, I've talked to... Uh, Attorney General, and uh, I've got them working on it. I don't want to start off with that any more than I do with 14B because I wouldn't get anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, and I don't want to publicize it, but I want to—that's—that's. That's, I want you to know the outline of what I had in mind. Yeah. Well, I remember you mentioned to me the other day when we met at the White House, and I have been very diligent in not uh, making this statement. Well, your statement was perfect about the votes important, very important, and I think it's good to talk about that, and uh, I just don't see how anybody can say that a man can fight Vietnam, but he can't vote uh, in uh, the post office. Despite the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act ending segregation, there were still laws blocking the right to vote for African Americans. On March 7, 1965, 600 people led by Hosea Williams of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and John Lewis, Chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and a future United States Congressman, attempted to march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. As they were coming across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, they were attacked 
by 150 Alabama State Troopers, Sheriff's Deputies, and other law enforcement. All of it was watched on national television, and it rattled the American people. John Lewis would suffer a skull fracture that day. Lyndon Johnson would address the nation at a joint session of Congress eight days later, on March 15, 1965. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the Congress, I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. I urge every member of both parties, Americans of all religions and of all colors, from every section of this country to join me in that cause. At times, history and fate meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord. So it was a century ago at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. There, long-suffering men and women peacefully protested the denial of their rights as Americans. Many were brutally assaulted. One good man, a man of God, was killed. There is no cause for pride in what has happened in Selma. There is no cause for self-satisfaction in the long denial of equal rights of millions of Americans. But there is cause for hope and for faith in our democracy and what is happening here tonight. For the cries of pain and the hymns and protests of oppressed people have summoned into convocation all the majesty of this great government, the government of the greatest nation on earth. Our mission is at once the oldest and the most basic of this country, to right wrong, to do justice, to serve man. In our time, we have come to live with the moments of great crisis. Our lives have been marked with debate about great issues, issues of war and peace, issues of prosperity and depression. But rarely in any time does an issue lay bare the secret heart of America itself. Rarely are we met with a challenge not to our growth, our abundance, our welfare, or our security, but rather to the values and the purposes and the meaning of our beloved nation. The issue of equal rights for American Negroes is such an issue. And should we defeat every enemy 
And should we double our wealth and conquer the stars and still be unequal to this issue, then we will have failed as a people and as a nation. For with a country as with a person, what is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, there's no Negro problem. There is no Southern problem. There is no northern problem there is only an american problem and we are met here tonight as americans not as democrats or republicans we are met here as americans to solve that problem this was the first nation in the history of the world to be founded with a purpose. The great phrases of that purpose still sound in every American heart, north and south. All men are created equal. Government by consent of the governed. Give me liberty or give me death. Well, those are not just clever words, or those are not just empty theories. In their name, Americans have fought and died for two centuries. And tonight, around the world, they stand there as guardians of our liberty, risking their lives. Those words are promised to every citizen that he shall share in the dignity of man. This dignity cannot be found in a man's possessions. It cannot be found in his power or in his position. It really rests on his right to be treated as a man equal in opportunity to all others. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. There is no reason which can excuse the denial of that right. There is no duty which weighs more heavily on us than the duty we have to ensure that right. Yet the harsh fact is that in many places in this country, men and women are kept from voting simply because they are Negroes. Every device of which human ingenuity is capable has been used to deny this right. 
The Negro citizen may go to register only to be told that the day is wrong, or the hour is late, or the official in charge is absent. And if he persists, and if he manages to present himself to the registrar, he may be disqualified because he did not spell out his middle name or because he abbreviated a word on the application. And if he manages to fill out an application, he is given a test. The registrar is the sole judge of whether he passes this test. He may be asked to recite the entire Constitution or explain the most complex provisions of state law. And even a college degree cannot be used to prove that he can read and write. For the fact is that the only way to pass these barriers is to show a white skin. Experience has clearly shown that the existing process of law cannot overcome systematic and ingenuous discrimination. No law that we now have on the books, and I have helped to put three of them there, can... can ensure the right to vote when local officials are determined to deny it. In such a case, our duty must be clear to all of us. The Constitution says that no person shall be kept from voting because of his race or his color. We have all sworn an oath before God to support and to defend that Constitution. We must now act in obedience to that oath. Wednesday, I will send to Congress a law designed to eliminate illegal barriers to the right to vote. principles of that bill will be in the hands of the Democratic and Republican leaders tomorrow. After they have reviewed it, it will come here formally as a bill. That this is the only path to carry out the command of the Constitution. To those who seek to avoid action by their national government in their home communities, who want to and who seek to uh, maintain purely local control over elections, the answer is simple. Open your polling places to all your people. register and vote whatever the color of their skin.
extend the rights of citizenship to every citizen of this land. There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. I have not the slightest doubt what will be your answer. But the last time a president sent a civil rights bill to the Congress, it contained a provision to protect voting rights in federal elections. That civil rights bill was passed after eight long months of debate. And when that bill came to my desk from the Congress for my signature, the heart of the voting provision had been eliminated. This time, on this issue, there must be no delay or no hesitation or no compromise with our purpose. country 
I recognize that from outside this chamber is the outraged conscience of a nation, the grave concern of many nations, and the harsh judgment of history on our eyes. But even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. As a man whose roots go deeply into southern soil, I know how agonizing racial feelings are. I know how difficult it is to reshape the attitudes and the structure of our society. But a century has passed, more than a hundred years, since a Negro was freed, and he is not fully freed tonight. It was more than a hundred years ago that Abraham Lincoln, the great president of another party, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But emancipation is a proclamation and not a fact. A century has passed, more than a hundred years, since equality was promised. And yet the Negro is not equal. A century has passed since the day of promise, and the promise is unkept. The time of justice has now come. And I tell you that I believe sincerely that no force can hold it back. It is right in the eyes of man and God that it should come. And when it does, I think that day will brighten the lives of every American. For Negroes are not the only victims. How many white children have gone uneducated? How many white families have lived in stark poverty? How many white lives have been scarred by fear because we've wasted our energy and our substance to maintain the barriers of hatred and terror? And so I say to all of you here and to all in the nation tonight, that those who appeal to you to hold on to the past,
do so at the cost of denying you your future. This great, rich, restless country can offer opportunity and education and hope to all, all black and white, all north and south, sharecropper and city dweller. These are the enemies. Poverty, ignorance, disease, they are enemies, not our fellow man, not our neighbor. And these enemies too, poverty, disease, and ignorance, we shall overcome. Tonight, not as President Roosevelt came down one time in person to veto a bonus bill, not as President Truman came down one time to urge the passage of a railroad bill, but I came down here to ask you to share this task with me and to share it with the people that we both work for. I want this to be the Congress. Republicans and Democrats alike which did all these things for all these people. Beyond this great chamber, out yonder in 50 states are the people that we serve. Who can tell what deep and unspoken hopes are in their hearts tonight as they sit there and listen? We all can guess from our own lives how difficult they often find their own pursuit of happiness. How many problems each little family has. They look most of all to themselves for their future. But I think that they also look to each of us. Above the pyramid on the great seal of the United States, it says in Latin, God has favored our undertaking. God will not favor everything that we do. It is rather our duty to divine His will. But I cannot help believing that He truly understands and that He really favors the undertaking that we began here tonight. Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen went to work immediately to get the 1965 Voters' Rights Act passed. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
August 4, 1965, the Voters' Rights Act passed. On August 6, 1965, the Voting Rights Act was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat. And the very first pen he used, he gave to his friend, the Republican leader, Everett Dirksen. Fifty years later, President Johnson's daughter, Lucy, wrote about witnessing the ceremony and about a question she had for her father. When I asked... Why he had given the first pen used to sign the bill to the Republican leader Everett Dirksen instead of one of the great civil rights leaders, he shook his head in disappointment that I hadn't gotten the obvious lesson. He told me, Lucy Baines, I didn't have to convince one of the great civil rights leaders to be for that legislation. They were already for it. But because of Everett Dirksen's decision to support this law and bring his supporters with him, the great civil rights leaders and I have a law, not just a bill. And that's why Senator Dirksen got the pen. He deserved it. 
trust and respect. That passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voter Rights Act, two of the most important pieces of legislation in all of American history. Tell me, do you think that could happen today? That's a damn good question, isn't it? I'm Randall Wallace. Thank you for joining us for Bridging the Political Gap. Until next time, so long for now. Speaker, before I begin my prepared remarks, may I point out that tonight marks the 10th and last State of the Union message that you've presided over. And on behalf of the American people, I want to salute you for your service to Congress and country. Here's to you. They weren't friends. They had never even met. They had totally different views on where the country should go. But each knew to make their own lasting mark on the nation, they would have to do it with each other. I feel confident the president himself has really no part on this. I think he's too much of a gentleman. And they did it. Somehow, some way, they made the 80s work and brought communism down together. Mr. Speaker, I'm grateful you have permitted me in the past, and I hope in the future, that singular honor, the honor of calling you my friend. Next time on Bridging the Political Gap. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.